Basement Friday. It's uh, your host, Kenneth. Welcome back. Sam. Your host, Sam. What's up, dude? How are you, man? Good, man. I see you're just stuffing your face with a chocolate brownie thing over there. Yeah, Trailer Dan's uh, wife makes some good treats. Oh, this is Trailer Dan's wife's treats? Oh, yeah. You can tell by the wrap. Like, not only is wow. it a delicious treat, but the presentation of the treat itself is in a little holiday bag. It's got a polar bear on it. It's got a little zip tie. Oh, my God. So you know it hasn't been tampered with. I've only taken one bite so far because I've been trying to save it uh, just to stuff my face after maybe I eat lunch because I haven't eaten any food. Yeah. To go straight to a peppermint brownie is probably the right call, so I don't even know why I'm saying this, but... Yeah. Uh, into more important matters, what is our episode about today? Yeah, we... I think we... One of the most excited I've been... To talk to some helicopter pilot, Fred North uh, is going to be joining us, and you should just check out his Instagram. Yeah, uh, pictures worth a thousand words, so a six-second video has got to be worth no like more. three billion. Watch what this guy does, and with that being said, let's just get into it. Let's do it. listeners let's get into it we've got an excellent guest uh, today mr fred north a uh, uh, esteemed helicopter pilot with uh, more flight hours than i've ever heard a helicopter pilot be able to have before so uh fred welcome to flight suit friday well thank you i'm not that old it doesn't mean i'm that old <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how many hours do you have sir uh like uh twenty thousand seven hundred or something that so I'm, I'm trying to do some quick math in my head there, but I want to say that's like two years of your entire life you've been at the controls of a helicopter. Yeah, I think it's it's almost three. I think it's like two and a half. Okay. Oh yeah. my god. <laughs> do you even have to like touch the controls anymore, or do you just kind of wizard the helicopter around with your mind? I mean, the truth is, um, after a certain point, and I will say. Everybody's a little bit different, but for me, it was around, I would say, five, 6,000 hours. That's when I started to kind of be one with the machine in a sense where I, I didn't have to think about anything. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm flying more with my brain in my head, you know what I mean, than acting, uh, moving the controls. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, it, it, it took a while, but... Um, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Fred, can you give us a little background, um, like who you are, where you're from, um, what you do? Obviously, you're a helicopter pilot, but specifically what you do, and uh, just to give our listeners a little uh, idea of, of where you're at. Yep. So I'm French uh, originally, and I moved to the U.S. 20 years ago um, to kind of, um, you know, increase uh, the stunt pilot, you know, kind of aspect of it. Because in, back back then in Europe, there, there were no really position as a phone pilot, um, you know, so per se. So um, um, I decided to move to the U.S. and then I became what you call uh, an aerial coordinator slash pilot, and that that it means that there's a, a few different jobs in there. Um, it's not just the flying part. The flying part is maybe ten percent of what I really do, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so Insta Instagram and social media doesn't really reflect necessarily the uh, the scope of the work. So I would say the the, the 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 one of the biggest things to do is divided between um, the the first thing that will happen is if they let's say a director 
you know, somebody wants to do an action movie and they need a helicopter sequence. Mm -hmm. Then what they need, you know, and that's a year or six months before the movie is going to start. So they need a, they need a budget first. Mm -hmm. So they send me the ballpark of the scene. Mm -hmm. They need a budget. So I need to put that together. So usually I do that. And then after when the movie is green lit, then I'm usually the one that is going to be hired because I give them the budget. So then after that, I have to check if it's, feasible uh -huh. the way they describe the, the scene. So I have to go into the script into details. I have to look, you know, try to understand their vision, what they're trying to do. It's not always in the script, you know, it's just, the script is just a basic thing. So, and then I'm adding creatively some more input to the scene mm -hmm. because the people writing the scene not necessarily know what we can do and what we cannot do with the helicopters. So our job is to give them ideas and options and creativity. So then I do that. And then usually I have to wait a little bit and then it comes back to me with the sequence that kind of will work. And then we keep rewriting, rewriting it until, you know, like a few weeks before the show. But then I have all the permit stuff to do, you know, all mm -hmm. the FA permit, the permit, whatever country I am in, licensing. So all that stuff behind the scene happened before we actually do the uh, stunt. And that's yeah, a that, lot. That's a lot. And and for those that are listening that haven't checked out uh, Fred's Instagram page, I'd I'd recommend you pull out your phone right now because ironically, um, you know, I like aviation stuff, so it it recommends stuff to me. And uh, I was watching your stuff before our producer Ryan even said, "Hey, we got to get this guy Fred North onto the podcast." Because um, what you're mm -hmm. describing right there just doesn't do it justice when you look at what you're doing with a helicopter to, to get some of these shots. And it's, it's incredible, man. Well, it, 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 it takes a lot of time. And I mean, on social media, it's difficult for me to, to show it to people. I'm trying to explain it to them, but they, you know, I, I, I will, I'll try to do more of it, but, um, it's yeah. not necessarily the fun part, you know, I mean, I love it, but, yeah. um, you know, yeah, that, that, uh, six second Instagram, you know, clip, you're like, that's awesome. But that took six months of work <laughs> yeah. to get to that moment right. where everything is at the right place at the right time with the right weather to say, execute, film it. Yep. In general, the shorter, the shortest video I put on Instagram, the longest it was to organize. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did because if it's six seconds, it's a crazy six seconds. Yeah. Uh, Fred, did you start out as a stunt pilot uh, or did you do something different um, prior to getting into that? No, I started as a tour pilot sightseeing in France. Mm -hmm. um, I did that for like a year and a half. And then after that, I went to uh, another company and I did, um, like in Europe, we have a lot of those rally race. It's like the Barra race, but it's called yeah. the Paris-Dakar and mm -hmm. other type of uh, African, Africa rally. Um, and so I've, I've, I've I went to that company that was doing that. So then that's how I got a feel for aerial filming, but it was for TV, right? It was for a TV event, sport, uh, rally race, uh, Formula One and sailing race, all that stuff. And at the time I didn't understand that there was a difference between filming sport events and filming for film, mm -hmm. for motion picture. Yeah. I didn't know the difference. And for me, that was just, you know, if anybody wanted to do aerials, he was going to, you know, just hire a, you know, a helicopter company with a pilot in there. So after I've done, you know, almost eight, nine years of rally race and all that stuff as a 
as a film pilot, but for the TV network, mm-hmm. then um, there is one guy, in, one American guy, uh, his name is Larry Blanford, and he's, uh, he's the, the cameraman that shot all the first Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he saw me on something, on one of the uh, Formula One um, uh, filming, and then he asked me to come to Venezuela to do a French movie, and one of the reasons he asked me to go there is because the machine that I was using in Venezuela was under a French registration. So they needed a French pilot. I mean, a French licensing pilot to fly that machine. Mm-hmm. And so basically, and, and I did a three weeks of film with him in Venezuela. And that's when he explained to me that the film pilot uh, is a job for motion picture. Mm. And, and then I realized that when you film for um, a TV event, you don't transfer emotion to what's going on on the ground. Basically, you're shooting what's happening, who's winning, who's losing. Yep. Of course, if there's a pretty light, they're going to love it. But when you do motion picture filming, it's not about what's happening on the ground. It's the way you are shooting it, the way you are filming the scene that basically brings emotion and you know more creative things of the shot itself and that's the gigantic difference yeah and i didn't really understand it and then i did at that point and that's when i decided to i wanted to become a film pilot you know that's incredible so are you uh obviously you're flying the helicopter and then you have a film crew in the back and and you are maneuvering the helicopter in a certain way to get the certain shot is that kind of how you're describing that yeah, so I, I so I usually when I I do filming, which is ninety percent of what I do, um, the the co-pilot seat is gone, and the cameraman is sitting on the rear left, and I'm sitting on the front right because okay. I'm flying, uh, you know, the Airbus H125 A star, and you know the the pilot is always sitting on the front right. But anyway, mm-hmm. the cameraman is in the back, and he has a. Um, a joystick with a, a desk control um, to control the camera. And I have two monitors, one on the left, one on the right, on each side of the uh, dashboard. And um, that allowed me to see live what's going on. Because what happened is when we do the filming, the cameraman and I, we don't really talk to each other. Really? We see the framing, and then we know what to do. And then we go for it. And if we see the same thing together then we don't need to talk. Then he knows what I'm going to be doing. I can see where where it's going to. Um, To give you an example, okay, if we're filming a car, a high-speed car, and there's a turn coming up, Mm -hmm. if I see, you know, where the sun is positioned and if there's foreground elements like trees or, which means uh, trees between us and the car, Mm -hmm. foreground elements or background elements, you know, behind the car, then I, I know he's going to want to show more speed to the car so he's going to want to see foreground elements going faster in the frame. So we don't talk to each other, but then I'm going to put those trees in the frame. So I'm going to put my altitude to a point where the trees will be cutting the frame a half. I don't know if really you understand what I'm saying, but yeah. no, I <laughs> yeah. do. For me, Fred, that just, it's just like, 
not only are you flying the helicopter, but you're also trying to consider where exactly you need to be altitude airspeed wise to get the perfect shot, which um, is making my brain hurt a little bit because like I have to do enough just cool. to think about keeping the spinny side up and, and all the communications and everything else that we do with our job. But uh, that's a lot of input, you know, a lot of things that you're processing and trying to, to maintain the entire time. No, I, I think that's where a lot of pilots that want to become film pilots, I think they get confused a little bit on what the film pilot does. And in fact, when you are really a, a film pilot as a job, you the helicopter doesn't exist anymore. Okay, you become a film pilot, which means the pilot is secondary. Okay, you, you the machine is gone and you're basically flying the camera. So which means you have to dedicate your focus, your effort, your training, everything you do on the filming part, the the flying part, you have it. Of course, you have to do training, all that stuff. I mean, I'm not saying you don't have to do helicopter training, but what I mean is when you do the flying itself, don't come up with some excuse with the helicopter stuff. Yeah, That cannot be in between <laughs> you and the camera. You know what I mean? How often so, do you have to consider rotor wash and do you even think about it for like low shots where, you know, people might be in it or over water? Um, is that still something you have to think about? Yes, a lot. Yeah, we don't want that. that uh, we don't want the rotor, you know, wash to be seen on the frame. So it's a it's a complex um, thing to do because, as you know, it's a, it's a, it's something that you never know where it's going to go depending on the wind. And I can give you an example. I I shot a movie uh, eight months ago in in England, and it's called The Young Woman and the Sea, and it's about that uh, woman in. You know, it was in 1892, something, I don't remember. Uh, it's super long time ago, but she crossed the channel mm -hmm. uh, swimming and the water was very cold. So anyway, they're doing a movie on her and the last uh, shot of the movie, it's her swimming toward the sun. Mm -hmm. It's her, like, so I mean her, it's a stunt double, but it's, um, but, right. uh, but so to get that shot with a helicopter, it's a complex shot because he wanted to start facing her um, swimming towards the camera, so towards the helicopter. And then we do a full, you know, um, a full like 270 and finish with her yeah. going towards the sunset. And you have to understand for me to get her full frame, you know, on the camera, I have to be maybe 50 feet from her. And to not seeing any downwash, it was complicated. I mean, yeah. we did it and... Uh, I don't know if you've seen on my Instagram, there is a, there, in fact, there's a six second shot with a green helicopter on the water and I'm talking about the downwash. I don't think so, I've seen that one. Yeah, I have to check that one out. Yeah. It was, that that one did five million views, by the way, six seconds. <laughs> so that's one. And the reason I think it's a downwash, people were not understanding how it works because you can see where my downwash is. And anyway, um, that video is from that shot that I'm describing to you. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look that one up uh, later. Hey, you mentioned uh, training. Um, are you kind of self-taught or did you go through any like official um, training to learn how to like get your mindset so that the the camera is at the forefront of your thought and not necessarily the helicopter? There's no there's no school for it. There's no training for it. Self-taught. So It's called know, the Fred North I, School. Yeah, there is a school. It's just talk, no, I, talk yeah. to Fred. <laughs> No, I'm, I, I, I thought about it. I'm thinking about it. I may do something, but um, he, he, it took a while. Long story short, um, 
it took a while for me to understand that you need to fly the camera and not the ship, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a while to uh, to understand the connection with the aircraft as a pilot, which I, I think that's applicable to any type of uh, flying you do. But the I think when when you when you learn how to fly a machine, I think the the standard system in the world it's not just in the U.S. It's the same in France or wherever you do it, but uh, they don't teach you to connect with the machine. Okay, they teach you to operate and to control the machine through the control. Mm-hmm. I think they're not pushing enough to try for you to feel the aircraft through other means, you know, with your hands, of course, so no gloves, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I suggest people when they learn and sometimes to remove their shoes and, and fill the machine with their barefoot mm-hmm. on the pedals because it's changed everything. You, 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 you get a feel for the machine, you you feel the vibration, you, you, your body is reacting to what you feel. And, you know, you, you, it, it's all those little things that does help connect with the machine. And I think if you do connect with the machine, you're getting better at it, which yeah. means you're not going to put yourself in crappy situation like a, a vortex or other things, because if you connect with the machine, you're going to know the machine is going to talk to you before you get into deep shit. Yeah, yeah you're going to feel it. I'm just imagining you uh, flying around in flip-flops and board shorts, Fred. Uh, oh, no shoes, Sam. Uh, sorry, no, no, shoes. no shoes. No yeah. shoes. No shoes. There's a few videos where some guys can see my socks. Is that white or something? <laughs> There's some guys that's zooming in to the lower window and see like they have no shoes. Which is, you know, they say, you have no shoes. I say, well, apparently I don't, but that's not the, you know, the point of the video. But anyway, I, I, you know, I, I know as a Coast Guard, um, it's impossible for you to fly without your shoes. But if you fly privately, you should try. No, I think yeah. uh, based off of our conversation today, I'm going to go to the chief pilot and say, hey, hey all of us, <laughs> no longer are we wearing boots uh, or helmets or gloves because um, we all well, want to aspire to be Fred Fred North. Dude, sign me up for that. <laughs> I don't have 10 pounds the on my head. The helmet is okay. The helmet is okay. But uh, the rest... Fuck me, you know, you guys, I've done that movie with you guys um, with Kevin Costner. Oh, The Guardian. Uh, yeah. Yeah, The Guardian. So anyway, I, I, I was in Kojak, by the way. Oh, cool. Shooting one of your uh, machine, a couple of, you know, Dolphin and I don't know if it was the Black or the Jayhawk or what. Yeah. But anyway, hey, um, I remember the, 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 the stuff you need to have on your on you guys. I mean, it's crazy. It is crazy. You know, yeah. This, the things is like what the fuck <laughs> you know <laughs> and uh, no but because it, it does goes in between you and the machine it absolutely does. yeah you know and and to me this is a fine balance like it's it's always a complicated conversation by the way because for safety people say oh you need this you need that you need this you need that so all your life you have to struggle with that stuff right uh, for something that may happen or may not happen which I understand you need to be ready for. Right. But I, th- I think there's room for improvement uh, for the people designing those suits and designing, you know, all the equipment that you guys wear, by the way, because it's, it's, it's heavy. It's not comfortable. It, it doesn't help you to manage your aircraft at 100%. I mean, mm-hmm. that's my opinion on it. Oh, no. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things you're like, great, well, if I was – one with the machine, maybe I wouldn't crash and I wouldn't need all the dry suits and all that stuff. I mean, it just know? makes me think, Kenny and I were both stationed in San Francisco before being here in Mobile. And 
uh, we have to wear dry suits all year long because of the water temperature. And then we'd get sent inland to a Sacramento area for a search and rescue case in the middle of the summer. And it's 95 degrees there and we're wearing a dry suit, yeah. you know, and like that just, it just popped into my head. Like I can't be as effective flying that aircraft no. or making decisions uh, when you're uncomfortable. <laughs> That's for sure. No, 1000%. Yeah. I mean, each time I have to put the similar suit that you guys put on uh, to fly above, you know, uh, frigid water. I have one that I bought in, in Iceland a few years ago. And each time I put that stuff, my neck is so tight. Like yeah. I, I guarantee, I think I lose 40% of my ability because I'm not comfortable. <laughs> yeah. I only yeah. want to get that shit out of my body. And, you know, and I'm thinking when I saw you guys, I said, the course guy said, those poor guys. I mean, I was feeling so bad for you guys. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I was, uh, I mean, you know, and, I mean, anyway, I think there's improvement to be made. And um, sometimes, you know, pilots are looking for, you know, like a secondary job. And I'm telling you guys, there's something to be made right there, you know. Yeah. Hey, Fred, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. You've been um, telling us about some of the projects that you've worked on. What do you think has been, I don't want to say your favorite because that's always tough, but what are some that, that come to mind when you hear like, hey, what, which projects did you really enjoy working on and, and maybe why? I mean, I would say usually the big, the big movies because they have a bigger budget so we can do bigger sequence. But mm-hmm. the Fast and Furious, I love because the chasing, you know, high-speed car doing you know, crashes and explosions and all that stuff. That's what I love the most. Yeah. But, but any movies with a big helicopter sequence, like stunt ones, of course, I love. So, you know, I recently done two movies like that. They're not out yet, but they're going to. One is called Extraction 2. Uh-huh. The first one was released on Netflix uh, during COVID, I think, in 2000. Oh, yeah. I think oh, yeah, I watched that one. That was good. I liked it. With Chris Hemworth yep. and that hostage situation. So we did number two. On that one, I had to land um, on a moving plane at 40 miles an hour. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> Say that <yeah>. again. <laughs> Landing on a moving train on one skid, by the way, um, to offload five bad guys that were attacking the train. Wow. A, a sequence like that, you know, the thing is, when the director called me um, six months before this you know, movie uh, starting, he said, Fred, I want have that train sequence and I want to do like a, the most badass uh, helicopter sequence with a train ever made. And then he told me, you know, I want you to, uh, to uh, fast roping five guys off a helicopter on a moving train. Yeah. And then, I, and then I told him, but you know, that's pretty easy to do. Why we don't land the helicopter <laughs> on the train instead of, you know, fast roping? Um, because the train goes straight. When you think about it, okay, I know you're laughing, but... To me, the trend's going straight. Yep. Okay. I, uh, the, the, speed, the speed is consistent. So to me, it's very easy to drop off people there. Yeah. You know Relative I mean? motion is zero at that point, you know. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, you know, for sure it looks sketchy because you have swing on the ropes and blah, blah, blah. But you can manage that part. I mean, you guys do that all day long. Yeah. So, um, so I said, you know, why we don't land with one skid um, and then we offload the five guys and then we, and then we arrive like a, like a crazy maniac and then we pull off pull out something crazy you know move mm-hmm. so then when I told him that it was six months before we even started the, the prep on it and sometimes I give those ideas and I'm thinking what the fuck you know <laughs> why I'm saying those things to them <laughs> to those guys because I, I think I can do it yeah then you gotta <laughs> do it <laughs> but you know what I mean it's a different story as a pilot I think I can land there 
But then when you do it, it's like, oh crap. So yeah. it, it, when, you know, when I was getting closer and closer to the event to, to do the, the training on it just before we did the show, they told me that the sequence was $5 million uh-huh. and the, everything was based on the landing on the train. So then you have pressure. No pressure. You know, no you know, pressure. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so, so so movies like that, and you'll see the movie, um, it's called Extraction 2, and um, if you Google it, I think it's going to be released in, in May, April or May on Netflix. I can't wait. I'm actually see. more excited to see that movie, knowing that we've talked to you specifically. Like, Absolutely. And waiting for that. And I'm trying to walk in through my head of like, okay. How would you make that There's approach? the train. Like, everything's good until like... Once a skid touches now, that's probably the difficult, at least for me, of like, what, what is that interaction of like, okay, when is the rotor disc going to not be holding that load of the weight and, you know, how fast is the train going? I think you said 40 or 50. 40 miles. But I mean, you know, I, I, I train on a, we put on a flatbed, that container that was on the, that's going to be on the train. And I told them I need a, decommission runway, I need a truck and a flatbed and I need to practice. And because before doing 40 miles an hour, I wanted to do that 10 miles and 20 and 30 and 40. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we went all the way to 80 miles an hour because I didn't know how fast the train was going to go. So we did all the training until 80 miles. But anyway, the, the first challenge, which I even didn't expect, when I put the first time this kid, um, as you know, you need to know at what speed the kid will be almost flat. Yeah not too much of a dip. Right. You know, um, because, uh, your rotor disc is that, pushed forward. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And also the five guys, the, the heavy guys, they are fully loaded with, you know, uh, backpack guns and stuff. They're the bad guys. So they're all tons of guys, like 250 pounds each. So each time they jump, you know, you get a, you, you get a move on the machine and reaction, of course, but yeah, th- that, that's not, that was not even that I knew was, that was going to be an issue, but, what I didn't understand is when I put this kid, I've asked them to put a, um, a fabric on a, a non-slide, not slippery fabric on top of the container because I wanted to make sure my skid stays where I'm right. going to put it and not slippering too much. So they put something that was too sticky. So when I put the skid on it, then, I mean, it was really awkward. The feeling of the control, like the machine. So, the, 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 the skid on the, on the right side was the one on the train. The one on the left was hanging off the uh, edge. Right. And so then I had the feeling the, the left skid was going down, and then I was compensating, of course, to the right. But then I, it was like I was thinking I was going to be running out of, of cyclic yeah. to the right. Huh. Um, and, and faster I was going to go, it was, it was more of a problem. So at the end, I, I didn't know that it was the fabric on the train. In fact, I was um, holding the skid too much I had to fight it a little bit. So it, it was just a learning curve. So yes, we do training and we do things like that when we do a stunt. And I trained for three days doing that until we all confirmed that 40 miles was the perfect speed to offload five guys, you know, and then controlling the machine and then blah, blah, blah. So... You'll see the movie, and I will. I will. I have plenty of videos behind the scenes showing all that stuff. But that was that was interesting, and it was minus six Celsius. Oh, in Fahrenheit, it's not good. Yeah, that's <laughs> cold. Very cold. That's cold. Um, and no doors. So, in addition to your own piloting problems, the temperature was so I mean, low. Did you have your shoes yeah. on for that one, Fred? <laughs> I I did, but the truth is, 
no gloves. So I, I, I bought those socks with the battery, the mm-hmm. heated socks. Okay. And then okay. sent it for the gloves. And then and between between the practice I was I was putting them on, but I had small shoes and stuff, of yeah. course. But Hey, have you, you know, I don't like big boots you know, in general. You, you've obviously done uh, a lot of uh, interesting things with a helicopter. Have you ever done one that's made you uncomfortable uh, or like, hey, maybe this is, maybe I said we could do a little bit too much. Uh, and how did you work through that? I mean, each time I do a stunt like that, it is uncomfortable. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's not comfortable. Um, the, the first thing is the pressure that I have uh, to manage before, just before we do it. Because uh, we can have 300 people involved in that sequence, you know, million of dollars from the studio. People trust you, mm. uh, people ex- have expectations. So, and I think all, all of us, as, as a pilot, all of us, we, we do have something like this. Uh, not necessarily the same level, but we all have expectations that we think people have. You know, I'm sure you guys have the same, like we expect you to save us you know, the, regardless of whether yeah. we ex, we have expectation, right? So I think each pilot needs to man, manage his expectation with a mental um, process. Yeah. So I, th- I think it's interesting me, that you say that because I think it's a, it's healthy for like all pilots to know of like, here you are with 20,000 hours. Like this is what you do day in and day out. And you're like, yeah, I get nervous every time I, I do something like that. I'm, I'm pushing my limits a little bit. And if you didn't have that little bit of nervousness, like that's probably when you need to um, start saying, Hey, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be doing this still. Yeah. I mean, for for sure. But to me, I want to do it safely. So, you know, each time I have um, worriness or I'm not comfortable, I'm always going back to the root of the job. And that's the same. I'm sure for you guys, like I go back to my protocol and everything we put in place, the team that I have with me is amazing and we all back up each other. Um, so to me, I go back to the, to the, to what we decided to do, you know, like, okay, we practice on the truck and then we, we, uh, we calculate the weight and balance. Um, and because that's a complicated thing to do because I've, I'm coming with five guys yeah. and then I land on one ski and then I don't have the five guys. And then some of them are on the left and you know what I mean? So the weight and balance is going to be in the limit right on the, on the limit, uh, doesn't matter if you have the five guys or if you don't. Yeah. Because I, I have to find a middle range between having those five guys exiting the machine and then them staying on board. Right. So anyway, so to me, I'm uncomfortable. I'm a percent. Um, I think mostly just before I do it. Mm. Okay. Because when I'm doing it, I'm so focused that, I don't really have room for uncomfortability. I don't know if you said that in English, but, yeah. um, um, you know, but I'm so focused on the job that now I'm not thinking too much. Should I do it? Should not do it? It's just before and between, between, um, shots because we may do that 50 times, you know, not three times. Yeah. So, you know, so then I, I, I just go back, you know, I'm a, I'm a calm guy in general, but, um, before I do a stunt like that, the morning off, uh, first of all, the night before, light meal, mm-hmm. eight hours of sleep, and then I do meditation for 15 minutes mm-hmm. uh, that morning, and then I go for my day, and then at the end of that day, I will go to the gym for 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah. Each time. Yeah. That gives me peace, you know. I like that routine. Um, have you had any emergencies in the helicopter uh, in the middle of a stunt? 
no. I mean, one time I got a, an engine, uh, what's it No, transmission chip light. Okay. But it's not, it's not really an emergency because you have time to land, but um, it's not something you want to see in the middle of a craziness. Mm-hmm. But I would say, you know, to me, because 99% of helicopter accidents are pilot-related, mechanically, you know, to me, I don't even think about it. Right. Because it's a 1%. That, that 1% is, is too small of a number for me to think about it. Okay, so I think about every other scenario for me to make a mistake. Because that's 99% of the problem. Um, I mean, so no, I, I really have mechanical issues um, yeah. on the stunt yeah. itself, you know. On that note, have you ever gotten yourself in a position, whether it was aerodynamically, uh, power available versus power required, where you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, that, a billion times. But um, the, the thing is, the, the helicopter has been designed for you to ne- technically always have a way out. Yeah. Okay. To, okay. So emergency, you have the protocol, blah, blah, blah. So it's not always, you know, black and white like that. But I think if you do your training properly and everything, you should be able to get out of it. But for me, it's more like um, I was filming for one of the Marvel movies. I don't remember which one, but it was in San Francisco. And it was windy as hell, which mm-hmm. is usually the case. It was a night shoot. And I was supposed to film a guy on a bicycle uh, leaving a neighborhood. So I was maybe... 200 feet above the ground trying to film that guy. And the wind was so bad. And the way they wanted to do the shot, of course, I had tailwind. Yep. So now you're talking about 30, 35 knots tailwind at 200 feet of the ground. And even if I know how to manage my vortex thing, it's still, I'm still going to get in into a vortex, you know, with that kind of, of, of wind and the way I had to do the shot, which was the worst possible scenario going down towards the guy with the towing. Oh, boy. You know. So anyway, I did that. Of course, I went to a vortex. It's that night and everything. And then I had to get out of it each time, which I did. But it's not it's not comfortable. It's it's not scary, scary stuff, but it's, it's right on the edge. Like you're kissing it, but you're not crossing it, you know. But I had to do 10 times. So I got 10 times into a vortex. And each time I got out, no problem. But I don't like it, yeah. you know. Uh, but, what method were you using to get out? Uh, the Vachard method? Were you just like... Jam- yeah, the Vachard method. I okay. always done that. Um, okay. Uh, even even before that thing came up. Um, gotcha. I was doing that a long time ago because I didn't understand the other... The other technique is for you to go straight to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... I, a, I, we've just started teaching that, uh, I don't know, in the last five five years, maybe, the, the Navy flight training that, that teaches us and the other uh, naval services. Um, but it used to be just, yep, push that put little collective out, cyclic forward, and yeah. wait until you get out of it. Go, yeah, go faster to the ground so you can hit it harder. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who's going to have a vortex at 1,000 feet up? You know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, that's exactly true. Um, I, that's interesting. Uh, I just wanted to reflect on that a little bit more. Like your edge is probably so different than what uh, any other pilot, especially in the Coast Guard's edge would be like, right? I've got 2000 hours and I'm proud of my 2000 hours, but I haven't <laughs> had enough experiences to, to really be able to push uh, a shot where like if I found myself in a 35 knot tailwind uh, coming forward and down and knowing I was going to get into rings vortex ring state each time I'd be like what the hell am I doing here but like that's part of your job and, and you've mitigated that with all the training uh, that you've had so I, yeah, I, I, I was mean, just really impressive 
the, the thing is to me, if I would, if I, if I didn't think I can get out of it safely at 100%, I would not you know, keep doing it. Right. I, I won't, I don't want to take a chance. Right. It's just that if you put the proper protocol in place and you do the proper technique, it's 1000% bulletproof. Yeah. Um, to me, you know, um, now if the wind would have been more, uh, then I was right at the limit, I would have stopped, you know, but, um, I would have done it differently and told, telling them, you know, um, I can't do this, this shot the way you guys want it, but let me offer another alternative. Yeah. Right. Because, uh, but I think you at the Coast Guard is so much different because you have so much more protocol and guidelines and rules than us. Um, then we have to make our own call when I believe you guys have to kind of follow right rules. No, we yeah. do. I guess. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. Yeah. Lots and lots of rules. And, uh, we're flying the, the 65, which is, we're always power yeah. limited, but the amount of uh, people and fuel and the avionics that we have on that thing. And all that stuff we have to wear yeah. in our person. Yeah. <laughs> You're heavy. Yeah, I'm not heavy. You know, I always have a fuel truck. We, um, we always, I will only use maybe 60% of the power available, 70%. Yeah, back. I was going to ask if you ever were torque limited, but it sounds like you aren't. Or power, I mean, power limited. It does happen when I fly in the mountains, you know, you have to understand each time I have to do a shot Yep. Um, yep. in high mountains, I guarantee you I'm going to be telling, I guarantee you have a rock face in front of me. I guarantee <laughs> you it's always like that, but it doesn't have to be um, in the mountains. Sometimes I have power limits when I fly between buildings with a mechanical wind. Mm. Then I, I, I get slammed big time, you know. Yeah. How do you deal uh, with that? Um with that mechanical turbulence. It's not something that we have to deal with too often. Maybe when we're flying along the cliff, cliff sides, uh, you know, on the West coast doing some rescues there. But, um, how do you plan for that? Do you just add, make sure you're low enough so you have plenty of torque or. Mm, no, I mean, I usually <laughs> don't choose where I'm going to do it. So yeah, usually, um, so I usually, so the wind, uh, you know, higher the building is worse is going to be. Um, of course, because the wind is stronger, higher you go. Um, and the mechanical part of it, so it depends at what, you know, floor I'm going to do the, the job. Sometimes it's tricky because they want me to be maybe 200 feet above the ground, which is high enough to get into trouble and low enough to be in trouble. Mm, right. So if I'm doing something really high, like I did something in New York, uh, for a, a music video award and I was, uh, filming that that building in New York called the, you know, it's that, that bridge that goes off the, the, the building on a triangle shape. It's called the, mm. I just famous one. So anyway, I should that, know. Sorry. You're from New York, Platform. Sam. Yeah, I'm you from upstate New York. Oh, okay. right. Yeah, Come on now. It's Sorry. downtown. It's downtown. It's, it's a building that came up maybe three years ago. Mm. Uh, anyway, the, that platform that's sticking out of the building is maybe, under feet sticking out of the building at maybe 1200 feet uh, up in the air, the glass thing. And anyway, there was a guy singing, I don't know if you know the weekend, you know, the, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. So he was singing right there and I wanted me to film the guy. So I was maybe 10 feet from him and then I had to pull out and throw some fireworks behind him on the Hudson River. So that, that day was maybe 25 knot wind on the ground, but up there, it was crazy and the mechanical wind was really hard to cope with. So usually when I do the, when I approach the top of the building, I'm always coming on the, you know, the, uh, the headwind side of it. Right. And then I slowly try to go to the downwind side of it and see how bad it is. 
Now, I'm trying to visualize that building in the water, and I'm trying to see what the water movement will do because it's similar than the wind. Yeah. So I'm trying to envision, okay, if there was water coming this way, what the water would do? And then I can see the wind doing its thing. You know what I mean? Yep. And, and then I'm trying to see what the vortex will be behind the building. Yeah. Because the vortex, in fact, is kicking you off the building if you're close enough to the building. The problem is if you go, let's say you have a strong wind coming, 30 knots and hitting one side of the building. If you are on the downside of the building, if you're really close to the building itself, I'm talking about 20 feet, yep. then you're safe right there. Yeah. But as soon as you go a little bit off, then that's when you get slammed. So, and the corner is complicated. So that one, I need a lot of power. Okay. So for jobs like that, I will go with a B3E with like H125. I'll be super low fuel. I'll be minimum person on board. I will have strict, you know, guidelines for me before doing that job. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um, also, how many helicopters do you fly? How many do you have? Uh, I own one, the H125, but I, okay. I, I, 90%, 95% of the time, I only fly the same one. Okay. The H125, which is called the A-Star. Yep. Uh, but the B3, uh, the most powerful one, the Airbus H125. So that one is uh, just a perfect, aircraft for camera platform yeah and for plenty of reasons uh the three blades um balance is amazing the uh, the vertical fin on the tail boom is amazing because it's it's thin enough that you can go sideways like you can go sideways crabbing to the left at 100 miles an hour no problem wow and then to the right you limit it to like 50 60 knots because of the torque mm-hmm. you have but mm-hmm. it's a crazy machine the, the cabin floor is flat so it's easy to put uh, equipment on board. You know, it's, it's, and the machine is, is forgiven, uh, forgiving a lot of things that if you go into a vortex, it will tell you before you get in. Yeah. It will vibrate really hard before you get into a vortex. So you know before you yeah. can already correct it. Yeah. So you barely go into a vortex. Then it's, it's an insane machine for that. Um, yeah. I saw one of your uh, Instagram. It, it looked like you were flying. I don't know, maybe 40 feet from a cliff, but facing it and just sliding left would look like 50 miles an hour. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that was like some trickery of the videography there, but um, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Each time I do something, it's because that's something we need to do uh, with a camera. Um, the camera being on the nose of uh, the helicopter, if we need to look backward for any kind of reason, or we need to do a pullback, Let's say we're shooting something on my right and we need to go away from him. Then I have to go sideways. Right. And then if, if I want to shoot something behind me, then you know what I mean? I have to go sideways and I pull. So yeah. there's a lot of stuff. I'm flying more sideways than um, anybody else. Because, you know, in fact, I'm coming up with a book that is going to come out in a few months and it's called Flying Sideways. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Um, it's this is super cool talking to you because I feel like what you get to do is what every helicopter pilot it's, actually it, wants to do. And every I'm actually, pilot's dream. Yeah, I'm yeah. worried that the next time Sam and I go flying, <laughs> we're going to see a train and be like, Sam, Sam, you you know what to do, right? And he's I like, know. yep. Yeah, easy. Land I'm sure checks. you have plenty <laughs> of recording crap in your machine so you have to disconnect everything. <laughs> <laughs> I think one Let's, one quick circuit breaker and we can get rid of that, you know. Yeah, easy day. Good. Yeah, like Let's hey, put that online. Good yeah, idea. Yeah. Hey, Sam, I bet you you can't touch a wheel on that 
uh, humpback whale over there. Easy, dude. <laughs> Easy day. Oh my no, goodness. No, but the truth is, you know, the truth is, I think if if as a pilot, if we challenge ourselves, uh, we're gonna get better. The problem is when you routine, always you routine in your flying. You do always the same thing. You don't challenge yourself. You only apply protocol, protocol, protocol. I think it does affect a little bit. You need to challenge yourself. I'm sure you guys do in bad weather and a lot of stuff, but it's, I think uh, it's always good to push it a little bit. Yeah, it's actually pretty awesome that uh, you, you bring that up because we literally, our last episode, we were talking with a, a Coast Guard crew out in Humboldt Station that um, did a, a night rescue of a mountain climber at 2,000 feet vertical surface recovery. Um, and, you know, they were like, cool, you can, you can never be okay with the standard, the training rut, exactly what you're talking about. And if you're not constantly challenging yourself, then you're just, you're not growing. Um, and we, we like to use a phrase called safe, aggressive training saves lives. And that's exactly what you just said. And we, we try to strive by that. Yeah. And I'm sure it must be difficult for the Coast Guard organization in general for the pilots, because how can you teach your pilot to push the limit, you know, without like, where is that limit for each person? Because right. it's different for each crew. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you have to accept a little bit of risk um, in doing so, uh, but it's going to make you a, a better organization to be able to respond to emergencies when, when people need you. Mm-hmm. No, 1000%. Yeah. To uh, like, for, I know for me, you know, more, Stunty, you know, challenge I do and everything, and then I, I can see I'm becoming better and better and better um, to to assess those challenge and to, to to do it safe. Right. You know, um, there's a crazy sequence. I cannot talk too much about it because um, it's not out yet. But for Beverly Hills Cops Four, uh-huh. the Eddie Murphy movie, nice. And there's a crazy. It's one of the most difficult, you know, stuff I've done in my life. And, and, you know, when the, as soon as there's a trailer out or you see anything with a helicopter online because they, they're going to promote the movie, then call me back because I can explain how we did that sequence yeah. and it's going to be interesting, I think, for pilot perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Fred, I got another question for you. You know, there's so many movies that you see out there that inevitably the helicopter uh, gets shot down, explodes. Like I think of uh, one of the Die Hard movies where he uh, launches a taxi uh, into the helicopter that's yeah. inside a tunnel. Like how do you how do you do those scenes? I mean, obviously we're not exploding helicopters, but so usually we try to to use the real machine until until the explosion. So, okay. or even, so the, the, there's a couple of things to, to do it. Um, in fact, there's a good example. Uh, on one of my Instagram posts not long ago, I post an explosion next to a train. Mm-hmm. Did you see that one? Yep. So that one was for extraction, by the way. And in the movie, the helicopter is crashing in the back of the train and explode. Mm-hmm. And the way we shot this, so I, I simulate the helicopter going to crash into the train. So I go on a dive, I go towards the train and maybe when I'm 10 feet from the train, I, I go away and then the explosion goes off at that, at that time. So okay. in that particular scene, the explosion was supposed to happen maybe 10 seconds after I uh, went off the train. But the guy that pushed the button um, didn't follow my cue because I gave him the count <laughs> three, two, one action and on action he's pressing the switch. Yeah. 
And I'm always the one to give the, uh, the, the account for that because I know when it's going to be safe for me. Right. So the guy, I don't know what went wrong that day, but it was bad because instead, when I started to count three, two, one action, instead to wait for action, he pressed on three. So what happened is I was going to be maybe 30 feet from the explosion on the way out when the explosion goes off. But then because he said three, I was maybe 10 feet from it. So then, you know, it went okay, but the blades went to the flame and everything. Nothing happened because, it, uh, you know, it's like putting your finger into a candle. Yeah, um, <laughs> just flame, I'm, right? I'm watching but the video. Not, right, it was not a comfortable thing to do, but usually we will make an explosion happening, but not at the same time than us, and then they're going to remove the helicopter and then, you know, um, simulate the crash that way. Wow. But we're going to do for real the the simulation of the helicopter going towards the ground and then we're going to go for real the explosion and then they're going to put the two together. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that that's fascinating. I'm watching that video right now and it's just, um, man, timing is so important. And <laughs> if you go wrong, you, you put the tail rotor through a ball of fire right there. Yeah, you're right. Now, um, you have to understand all our explosions, there is no debris, nothing. It's just heat. Yeah. Um, but now heat is not good. <laughs> to a point, no. but it's a, it's a fraction of a second heat. Right. So the chance of an issue is pretty small, but I don't want to be a French, uh, you know, French toast, uh, you know, or barbecue. No, yeah. the weekend. Nobody. You know, yeah. yeah. But they were supposed to, normally something like that never happened. I mean, the, the people are super professional, super careful. That guy, you know, we, it was fire on the spot, but, um, you know, it was in, uh, in one of the country in Europe, but um, it was just a, a mistake on that part. But uh, you know, we can't have mistake like that, you know, because it's affecting us. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, Fred. Uh, one of the things that we're always talking about as pilots is uh, drones, and um, I would say specifically in your industry, have you seen the the drone industry creeping in on your business? And do you think it'll ever uh, over overtake it? Are you going to look to go drones or? How do you feel about that? So the first thing is people get confused on what a drone can do and what a camera helicopter can do. And they, it, it's not because it's flying with a camera that it becomes identical to another product. And, you know, a drone is way more complicated, complex to fly as a camera platform than people think. Um, first of all, the detached thing, the fact that the, the crew is controlling and operating the drone uh, uh, in a detached way from the camera and a detached from the from the aircraft itself, uh, translate to a lack of uh, spatial orientation for them. Mm. Okay. Uh, they uh, translate to a lack of depth of field. They don't. They, it's hard for them to know. You know. Um, let, let, let let me give you an example. Okay. If there's a tree in the middle of an empty field, just one single tree, okay? And you're asking a drone, a camera drone, to go 400 feet from that tree, do a shot as close as you can from the tree, go around the tree and come back. Mm -hmm. Do you realize how complex it is for a drone to do? If I do that shot, it's a walk in the park. And why? Because I can see the tree and I can manage my distance and the reveal of the tree, go around the tree, the speed, with my gut, my feeling, what I can see. Mm -hmm. The drone guy has to do it remotely, far in the distance. There's no way 
he can go right behind the tree without hitting the tree. How does he know he passed it? Yeah. So if you put somebody with a radio and say, okay, you clear. By the time he said clear, he already passed the tree maybe 60 feet. So the shot is shit because <laughs> he's not close to the tree enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. So people get confused of what a drone can do and um, a camera helicopter can do. One cannot replace each other. The overlap is maybe, I would say, 10 to 20%. Max. Okay. 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 But then the 80% is unreplaceable. There's always going to be room for a camera ship, uh, helicopter, and always going to be room for a drone. Now, 99% of the movie I do, there's a drone on set, and 99% are higher than us. Got it. Okay. Okay. And the reason is because I can see the obstacles moving. Uh, I, can, I can take my own timing. So like for a drone crew, it's very hard to take a timing at 300 feet distance on a moving object coming towards them. It's already difficult for me, but I'm higher, I can see, and mm -hmm. then I can, I can change my speed on the feeling of the uh, timing that I can see. On the drone, it's impossible. Right. So there's no, it, it, there's no problem of future for my position. There's no problem of um, the, the two, they, they go along. It's the perfect, in fact, uh, setup to have a drone and a camera helicopter. But if you try to use one to replace the other, you're going to fail. Yeah. 100%. Okay. And in, in fact, in fact, the, um, they just quickly before we go away with that uh, topic is like, there's two types of camera drones. You have the big camera drones, they're six feet wide. They're heavy. They don't even turn. They slide. Okay. They can't turn because they're, you know, they're multi-rotors. So they opposite each other. So they can't really, uh, you know, it's not like a pendulum rotor like us, which means they can't really turn. They slide. So they, they're very good to go straight and back, but it's hard to make turns. They can, but it's slow. Yeah. And then you have the FPV drones. You know them, the FPV, the smaller ones? Yes. Okay, so the FPV, they, they have a camera bolted to them. They don't have a gyro head, which means the horizon will change left and right. So the problem when you use an FPV drone on a movie, you can see the horizon is off. Okay. So you can only use them for very specific shots, you know, action shots. You can use yeah. them for uh, something pretty and everything. So long story short, no problem there. <laughs> yeah. nice. That's awesome. Uh, Fred, we hear you have a world record of some sorts in a helicopter. Uh, do you care to yeah. uh, tell us about that? Yeah. So it was in 2002. Um, it's, uh, I would say in uh, France, I'm sure you have something in the U.S., uh, 40 years old crisis. Yeah. Kind of thing. yeah. So you can buy a Porsche or you can uh, do the world record. It's one or the other. <laughs> so I didn't have the money for the Porsche. <laughs> uh. so, so anyway, it was one of those. Well, I was a bit bored in my life. I wanted to do something more advanced. And first of all, I wanted to land on the top of the Everest. Yeah. But I started to look into it, and it was so complicated to get the paperwork, the permit from you know Nepal, and because the top of the Everest, they're fighting between them. Um, China and yeah. everybody is, is, is and they're passing it's theirs. So anyway, um, I, I let that go. Um, and then Airbus did it after um, because they have, you know, the proper network to get approval. Right. But um, that would have been nice to do. Um, so then I figured, okay, I can do the altitude record. But then it was complicated uh, for so many reasons. Um, first, in France, they said no for me to go above the max uh, 
a proof ceiling on the machine that I choose to do it with, mm-hmm. which was, you know, um, 18,000 feet, end of it, uh, VFR, you know, max ceiling. And then they didn't want to give me, you know, a waiver for it. So then I had to find a country that, you know, give me that approval. <laughs> so South yeah. Africa, long story short, it took me a few months. South Africa gave me the approval uh-huh. to go beyond, you know, the max ceiling uh, authorized. And then I had to find uh, the oxygen system, uh, the equipment for me to be able to breathe and also to have a counter pressure jacket to, uh, to offset the, uh, the lung air um, expand uh, when you go so high because I, I, my, my cabin is not pressurized. Right. So I, I need it. And, to, and you can't buy those things off the shelf. No, you, you probably didn't make it. <laughs> no, I, I bought it in Russia. Did you? I bought it in Russia. Yeah. Yeah, I bought a, a Russian equipment um, and I still have that stuff. <laughs> By the way, if somebody wants to do it, <laughs> I can give them my equipment. And, and so anyway, it, it was complicated and everything. And then the, the, the guy that uh, uh, hold um, the record in France called Jean Boulet, um, he did it in 1972, I think, or 1973, I don't remember, but he helped me a lot yeah. um, to, go, to go through what can happen, what can go wrong, what I should be prepared for. So it took me two years to get ready. So I started in, in 2000 and in 2002 in March, um, I went to South Africa and I did the record. And the, the, what happened is I hired one guy, it was an American guy that was in charge of my safety, safety of the aircraft, safety of the equipment, and also uh, make sure my record was gonna be official. And the guy made plenty of mistakes and long story short, he didn't make the arrangements for me to, um, to, to make it official, you know, so uh-huh. I was like, yeah, you know, so the only thing I have is, uh, I have a document from the Cape Town tower that confirmed I was at 42,500 feet. But anyway, in, Wait, what, in did, the, what did you say? Riding, what altitude? 42,500 feet. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. I thought it was going to be like 20,000 something, 42,500 no, feet. No, 20,000 20, is a joke. Yeah, I guess so. Oh my God. It's in your head. You know. <laughs> I didn't know a helicopter you could know, do that. No, me neither. But uh it, look, it worked. Um it was it took me eight minutes to go to uh twenty eight thousand feet. Yep. And then it took me an hour and twenty minutes to go from twenty eight thousand to forty two five hundred. How big and were your how big were your cyclic movements to keep the spinny side up? It's it's pretty big because the machine is uh, sluggish. Yeah. Out there. Yeah. You know, uh, the problem was the wind, the temperature minus fifty six Celsius, um, and the wind was crazy, like sixty five knots. It was bad, and then I had the engine failure, of course, on the top. What? And then, <laughs> it took, yeah, and then it took me four minutes from forty two thousand five hundred feet, engine off, all the way down, landed. Um, but it was, I mean, it was so hard, you know, Sam, and it was so hard for me physically and mentally, but more mentally than anything else Yeah. that I'm not, yeah. I'm not kidding. Um, you know, before I did that, that, uh, that record, I thought I was a strong guy. Like, you know, when I was, um, when I look at people that were depressed or people had breakdowns, I had no pity back then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then I, I did, and then, then I did the record. Okay. And then when I was just a few seconds before touching down, 
okay, uh, after those four minutes, my body started to shake from head to toe. And I'm not kidding, shaking out of control. I put the machine on the ground and then it, I, I cried for 45 minutes. Wow. Just I a massive adrenaline dump. Yeah. Total wreck. And I, I was total wreck. Like they had to pull me out of the machine. Like I was not physically capable to move. Um, if you look at my website, uh, I've put a lot of pictures of that day and you see that uh, me crying, in fact, at the end. Yeah. Uh, you see my face and everything. And then it was hard. It was hard on, on, uh, on me mentally and physically. And I can tell you that today, after the record, I have way more compassion and, and understanding of people that go through hard time because I hit my limit that day mentally, yeah. you know? So I know I have a threshold and that was it. So, you know, it, it was a learning, you know, um, learning uh, event for me. That is unbelievable. Was it a dual engine helicopter or did you auto down from 42? No, single engine, um, single engine. So did you so shut it off or did it fail okay. because you're up too high? It failed, uh, okay. lack of oxygen, it just failed. So okay. flame out basically. And then uh, I restarted it at 14,000. I mean, I started at 20,000, but it went back on at 14,000, but I only like uh, two minutes of fuel left. I mean, it was crazy shit. My RPM was through the roof. I was the speed. Then I was above the ocean. I couldn't go back to the shore. I mean, there's plenty of crap, but in the Good book, Lord. I'm explaining everything <laughs> in detail. Oh my God. You almost died. I mean, yeah. Um, (laughs) Uh, But I I didn't want to. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. I think I'm a much weaker man than you. I think I would have hit my limit way (laughs) before we took off. 22,000. Yeah. Even before we took off. (laughs) No, but the two things, you know, I was, I was really scared when I took off. Uh, I took off at 630 in the morning and it was plus 35 degrees Celsius uh, on the ground and it's minus 56. So it's like almost 90 degrees difference. So on the body's hard, but I was, I was scared when I started it. And the only reason I, I didn't turn around is because I would have feel like uh, I'm not a man or I'm not like, because I made the decision to do it. Mm-hmm. And as you know, in life, there's so many people telling you to not do something. Like there's more people telling you to not do something that people tell you to do something. Yeah, and easy. I was thinking, I've done, and what I was telling before, you know, I went back to the protocol. I think, okay, I prepped this. I did that. I did everything that I supposed to. It'd be fine. I have to do it. So don't be, you know, chicken shit. Do it. But I had to fight (laughs) my demon in a sense, you know, and I'm sure it's the same for you. If you go in bad weather or stuff, you got the, you got the training and everything, but the, 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 the brain telling you go back home, amigo, but you know, you have the training to go through it, but it was a learning curve for me at 1000% as a, as a person. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. I didn't even know that that was a thing. And now 42,500 feet. I mean, airliners don't even go up that high sometimes. I know. I mean, they, there was that 747 that came close to me just to <laughs> check me out. And the, the guy was, I can hear, you know, he was, I mean, you'll see in the book, but I'm, I'm explaining there's a guy I can hear, South African Airways is calling Cape Town Tower and I don't understand. I'm a tower frequency. And then he says, 
uh, on the approach. I mean, and then the guy says, oh, you know, I can see on my TCAS there's a little dot. What is that? And the guy said, to, the guy says, and I can hear, he said, it's a, fr- it's a crazy French guy trying to break the wall. That's the record. <laughs> I can hear. It's like, hey, guys. Uh, sorry to bother you. I'm busy right here. Yeah, I'm <laughs> trying to focus, the guys. South African, the South African airway pilot says, can I go check him out? The guy at the tower says, sure, go ahead. I said, no. you guys, are you nuts? And, and that plane came, you know, from my perspective, pretty close. You know, I see the plane pretty close. Yeah. And, you know, and you have to understand, I was going like 35 knots on, yeah. on my cruise, cruise speed. At full power, right. at that altitude, he was going. I don't know, four hundred yeah. or five hundred, whatever that is. I mean, but it was nice from him, even if he kind of gave me, you know, um, scariness a little bit. But anyway, wow, it I- was interesting. If you go on the website, you can see a lot of pictures, and I explaining a little bit of story. But in the book, I really go into really details of what went through my mind. Yeah, f- you know. Thanks for sharing that, share Fred. That. that that's an unbelievable. I mean, all your stories have been unbelievable. That's that's particularly <laughs> crazy. That's really cool. Um, before we wrap it up, do you have any other uh, parting shots or uh, anything that you want to mention that we didn't cover already? Yes, I just want to say one thing to all of the younger pilots out there um, that want you know to do uh, to do that as a career, or they already started. But uh, I will say that. If you want to be successful, I mean, my opinion for that is you want to be successful in the helicopter world as a, as a pilot, I think you should really try to become an expert in one thing only. And you should dedicate your effort and your money, your time, your everything to that one thing only. And don't try to have like five, six, eight different type rating, just one. Excel in one, learn that one, become that type rating, and then if you, if you, if you lead through that type rating that you have, then you're going to be so good with it that you're going to be successful and then people will hire you better. Yeah. I see so many pilots that can show me their type rating like 10 and it's like, but so which one are you good in? You know, it's like none. <laughs> and I guarantee you on those 10, if I, I start to ask them question on the, on the flight manual, they don't know. There's yeah. no way, you know, you know, I, just for me, uh, just my B3 that I've been flying for 40 years is like, I still, you know, reading the flight manual once in a while because I forget. So to all the young guys out there, um, you know, I, I, you should, I think, push hard to just be an expert on one field only and they have to choose. And the last thing I want to say is I think um, those young pilots need to know what kind of pilot they are. And for me, there's two um, kinds. Mm. The one that fly with his gut, his instinct, and he doesn't really follow too much protocol. That guy is more like a bush pilot, like utility pilot, mm. which I am in that category, okay? And then the one that flies with his brain, his head, like more like a flying a computer, flying a, you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating when I think airline pilot, but if you IFR or you're more controlling the machine, um, the, the assets of the machine than the machine itself. And you have to know who you are as a person. Like, are you more like an instinct person? Because if you go to the wrong kind of flying, then you're never going to be excelling at it because your personality is not going to match the uh, flying you're going to do. So just something important, I think. 
Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Thanks for sharing that. Um, you, you uh, hiring anybody? Kenny and I uh, can be uh, free to <laughs> come, come, come get your coffee. Uh, well, you, you're flying heavy machine, you know. Yeah. It's really. Yeah, that doesn't really work too much for me. You need, no. you need lighter aircraft. Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah. It's funny because yeah. we but have sometime the lightest. We, sometimes we, uh, we, you know, we use black oak and stuff like that. Yeah. We do crazy stuff, but um, yeah, maybe potentially. Well, Fred, we, we really can't thank you enough. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. Cause I know, uh, it, it took us a while to try and get our timelines lined up, especially cause you film all over the world and, um, given insight to junior pilots, senior, even senior pilots in our organization from a true helicopter pilot is really, really worthwhile to us. So, uh, I can't thank you enough. Kenny, you got anything else? My pleasure. No, just thank you so much. It's been a absolute pleasure and I've learned a lot. All right, sir, you stay uh, stay safe out there. Fly safe. Yeah, thank you. You too. Thank you so much, guys. Okay, okay. take it easy. Bye. Bye. Dude, that that was insane. Wow. <laughs> I, I'm i glad you asked that question because I saw in the show doc, Ryan had like, hey, like altitude record maybe. I thought he was going to say like 23,000 feet. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah. Are you kidding 40, me? 42,500. Dude lost his end. He probably knew it was going to happen. Then he yeah. autoed. He did a th- only down to fourteen. He did a thirty thousand foot <laughs> auto, dude. How long is that? I mean, it took, so it took him four minutes, but holy shit! Yeah, so he was what is it? Roughly like nine thousand feet. Am I doing my math right? Ten thousand feet a minute? Yeah, something. That's crazy. Oh my god. Yeah, I'm I'm a little concerned for the next time I go flying. Oh like, hey, yeah. See those two skyscrapers? How low do you think we could go? We say goodbye, but now-